0: Welcome to the Valley Avon podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This episode marks the beginning in our new sermon series titled Destructive Decisions, How to Avoid Life-Altering Mistakes. In the first teaching of this series, Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill defines moral failure and outlines three principles of such failures learned from the life of Samson in his sermon titled, Unfulfilled Potential. Join us now as Pastor Rob begins with a word of prayer.
1: Gracious Father, as we turn our attention to your word today, we pray asking that you would pour into our lives wisdom. Give us the wisdom, Lord God, to know what it is that you want us to do. Give us the wisdom to know what it is that you want us not to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how do we avoid life-altering mistakes? You see, some destructive decisions that we make in life have life-altering consequences. For instance, if we cheat on a spouse, if we steal, if we lie, if we express our anger unhealthily and repeatedly, if we transgress moral standards in life, if we do these kind of things, if we give ourselves over to addictions in life, then we're very likely going to experience some life-altering consequences. Jeff Zucker made a destructive decision that led to life-altering consequences. Until February, Jeff was the CEO of CNN, but then it became public knowledge that he had uh, made an ethical mistake. He had carried on a relationship with another executive at CNN without disclosing that fact. It was ironic because Jeff had fired another CNN employee, anchor Chris Cuomo, for ethical violations. Now, some people will say that Jeff Zucker's downfall was political or strategic, but the fact of the matter is that when he made the decision to hide his relationship and not disclose it, he gave people the opening to change his life. Jeff was fired. Destructive decisions lead to life-altering consequences. Now, some life altering mistakes that we make can be called moral failures. What is a moral failure? That's really what we are dealing with right now. What is a moral failure? Well, a moral failure is a time when we break a moral standard. Life moral failure involves breaking some type of moral standard. In other words, we We break an expectation that is put on us. Not all sin and not all mistakes constitute moral failures. But when we both know, when I know and you know that the standard is important, when that standard is transgressed, we could have a moral failure. Moral failures may involve doing something that we are expected not to do. We break a rule, we cheat, we lie when we were expected not to. That can lead to a moral failure. Moral failures also may involve not doing something that we are expected to do. We do not complete a task that we were expected to complete. We do not meet a goal that we were expected to meet. That can be a moral failure. Finally, moral failure disrupts our lives. Moral failure disrupts our lives, meaning we may lose our job. We may lose our friends. We may lose our spouse. We may lose our family. We will likely lose our ability to do the thing that God has put us together to do in life. So this leads again to that question, how do we avoid these life-altering mistakes? To explore that question, we're going to turn to the book of Judges. I covered the book of Judges last spring quickly, but we're going to go back to the life of one of Israel's leaders, Samson. We're going to look at his life, his death, his mistakes, his moral failure. And as we do so, we're going to come away with principles that help us to avoid life-altering mistakes, destructive decisions, life-altering consequences, moral failures ourselves. As we turn, though, to the life of Samson, what we're gonna discover is that Samson's life illustrates moral failure. Samson's life illustrates moral failure. Now, to understand how that's the case, you have to understand from the beginning what Samson's job was supposed to be. God gave Samson a job to do, and that's the place where we have to begin if we're to understand his moral failure. Samson lived in a period of Israelite history after the Exodus, after God set his people free from slavery in Egypt, after the people of God entered into the promised land, but before the kings of Israel reigned and ruled. During this season, the people of Israel were walking away from the ardent faith that they had had at earlier times. In fact, Israel's story was a cycle that was spiraling constantly downward. In this cycle, we saw the same pattern of behavior repeated over and over again. The people of Israel would prosper. Then they would turn away from God. To get their attention, God would turn them over to the hands of their enemies. Then the people would cry out to God. God would send them a deliverer. That deliverer and the power of God would set the people free from their enemies. They would turn back to God in mass numbers and prosper. And then the cycle would begin over again. Each time this cycle repeated, though, everything got worse. In the case of Samson, as you heard Mary read to you earlier, the people of Israel were under the the persecution of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years, that's a long time to be suffering consequences. And in the case of Samson, the people of God never called out to God for deliverance. God simply sent a deliverer to them as a sovereign decision of his own. God sent Samson in, and he had a job to do. Samson's job was to begin delivering the people of Israel from the Philistines. Now that we know what Samson's job is, we can begin to understand and break down his moral failure because what we discover is that Samson broke a moral standard. I said that moral failure involves breaking a moral standard. Samson broke a moral standard. Now, of course, Samson had the same moral standard given to every one of us. God's law applied to him the same way it would have to anybody in Israel. But God gave Samson an additional moral standard When Samson's birth was predicted, the angel of the Lord told Samson's parents that he should live according to what is called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was a a way that a person could become consecrated or dedicated to God in a special way for a season or for a lifetime. And this is the moral standard that God put on the life of Samson for a lifetime. The Nazarite vow involved never touching a corpse, It involved never consuming alcohol, and it involved never cutting one's hair or shaving one's head. This was the moral standard that was placed onto Samson's life. But what we're going to find is that Samson broke that moral standard over and over again. As we continue to study the life of Samson, we're going to find that Samson did things he was expected not to do. What we're going to find as we study the life of Samson is that he systematically broke his Nazarite vow. But that was just the beginning of the ways that he broke the moral standards in his life. In one of the most famous incidents from Samson's life, he entered into a relationship with a Philistine woman named Delilah. Now, when the Philistines discovered that their enemy was in a relationship with one of their own, the Philistine leaders paid Delilah to discover the secret of what was Samson's great strength. Samson was incredibly powerful. He was incredibly successful in battle, and the Philistines wanted to know how that was the case. We'll skip over the details, but Delilah was eventually able to get the secret out of him. Samson told her... Well the secret to my strength is my hair my head has never been shaved if my head were to be shaved my strength would be gone and so delilah lulled him to sleep in her lap had someone shave his head and when he woke up his strength was gone and his philistine captors were a- or philistine enemies were able to capture him samson conv- cavorted with the enemy And he gave away state secrets. Those are both things he was expected not to do. In addition, Samson did not do what he was expected to do. He did not do what he was expected to do. Samson was expected to begin delivering the people of Israel from the Philistines. But as soon as his strength was gone, the Philistines captured him. After they captured him, they gouged his eyes out. They put him in prison. And in prison, they had him grinding wheat. That's not exactly delivering the people from the Philistines. Samson did not do in prison what he was expected to do. And as we continue studying the story of Samson, we find that Samson's moral failure, as moral failure frequently does, ended his his work and his life. Moral failure always disrupts our lives. In Samson's case, moral failure ended his life and work. In prison... The Philistines decided to celebrate the fact that they had won over Samson. They decided to throw a party to celebrate in the temple of their god, Dagon. They brought all of their leaders together, thousands of people gathered in the temple of Dagon, on the floor and on the roof of it. They brought Samson in to entertain them And in a break or before he entertained him, he asked to just lean up against one of the two pillars in the center of the temple, uh, supporting the entire temple. As he leaned there, he prayed and asked God to give him the gift of strength one more time. And as he leaned there, he reached out to both of these pillars and he began pressing on them and the pillars collapsed and the temple fell and it killed him and everyone inside. That day, Samson killed thousands of Philistines, thousands of Philistine leaders, and himself. What we find is Samson's life and work are now over. But you see, the end for Samson illustrates what moral failure looks like. Samson broke a moral standard. In addition to that, Samson did things he was expected not to do, Samson did not do things he was expected to do, and Samson's moral failure led to the end of his life and to the failure of his work. Understand this, Samson killed thousands of Philistines, which sounds great. He killed many of their leaders. It sounds like a victory for Israel, but it's a minor setback for the Philistines. Samson did not rally the people of God. Samson did not win a decisive victory over the Philistines. Samson can only barely be said to have begun delivering the people of Israel from the Philistines. And at the end of his life, unlike with the other judges, there is no footnote that says there was peace in the land of Israel. Samson was a moral failure, and his moral failure ended his life and work But as we consider the life, the death, and the moral failure of Samson, we come away with critically important principles for ourselves. And I want to share with you today three foundational principles of moral failure that we need to walk away with today and that need to guide us for the balance of this study. Principle number one is don't be distracted by potential. Don't be distracted by potential because as we look at the birth of Samson, we see that it is surrounded with potential. I'd like to read for you again from Judges chapter 13, verses two through five. Listen for the potential that there was in him. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." Now look at all the potential that is surrounding him at his birth. We begin with an Israelite named Manoah and his wife, and they are a couple that's childless. And this is a familiar story. When God is ready to deliver his people, frequently he works through couples that were previously childless. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife, to Samson's mother, and announces that she would have a baby. Surprisingly, miraculously, she who had not given birth would give birth The angel told her to observe a Nazarite vow the entire time that she was pregnant with this child and added, don't eat any food that's unclean. The angel announced that Samson should observed this Nazarite vow all of his life, particularly the part about not cutting his hair. And if he did so, he would become phenomenally strong and be able to begin delivering the people of Israel from their Philistine captors. Look at all that potential, angelic announcement, miraculous events, great strength to come, high expectations. And yet, from the very beginning, we find that that potential is clouded by problems. Those problems become clear in verses 24 and 25, which read, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson? And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Dan between Zorah and Eshtiol. Now, it's very interesting because the cloud of problems is already hanging over Samson back in verses one through five because the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and the angel is able to assume that when he speaks about a Nazarite vow, Manoah's wife is at least a faithful enough Israelite that she's heard of the Nazarite vow before and knows what it is. But at the same time, the angel made a point of telling Manoah's Manoah's wife that she would not eat any unclean food. Not eating unclean food was something expected of every faithful Israelite. The fact that the angel felt a need to point this out to Manoah's wife indicates that likely she was not quite a faithful Israelite. In verses 6 through 23, we discover about Manoah that his life reads as much through the lens of a person who is a pagan as it does through the lens of a person who is faithful to God. And that duality is confirmed in verses 24 and 25 when the couple named their son. They call him Samson, a name which is derived from the name of a local sun god And his name essentially means son of the sun god. Which reminds us that at this period in history, Manoah and his wife were probably as pagan as they were followers of the Lord, which is exactly what was in the heart of Israel. Paganism and the worship of the Lord went side by side and hand in hand. That is probably the way that Samson approached life, and therein lies the problem. Despite all the problems surrounding Samson's birth, he comes to be a man with powerful gifts. From the very beginning, we discover that the Spirit of the Lord is with him. Because the Spirit of the Lord is with him, he has tremendous physical strength. But in addition to that, we discover that he is a person of tremendous personal charisma. People want to be around him. People like him and are drawn to follow him naturally. But the simple fact that Samson is a man of such tremendous power reminds us of the fact that power and potential can cloud our judgment. People's judgment about Samson was clouded by his physical strength and his charisma. Our judgment about people is frequently clouded by their potential When we meet extraordinary people and we find that they are capable of accomplishing extraordinary things and and getting to extraordinary ends, we frequently overlook the problems that come along with that extraordinary potential. When we look at ourselves, if we find ourselves to be people with the potential to accomplish something, we overlook our own problems, And frequently, the seeds of a person's downfall are right there evident for everyone to see, but potential blinds us to these problems. The tremendous power that Samson had and the fact that Samson was characterized as well by problems that were to bring him down should be a reminder to us that if it can happen to the strongest of us, it can happen to any of us. If Samson can be brought down by the problems that existed in his life, then it is a reminder to each and every one of us that we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to destructive decisions. We are vulnerable to life-altering mistakes. We are vulnerable to moral failure. When we think that we are immune to destructive decisions, life-altering mistakes, and moral failure, we are setting ourselves up for those very things. Do not be distracted by potential. When we remember the fact that we are vulnerable to destructive decisions, life-altering mistakes, and moral failures, we create a defensive perimeter around ourselves that makes those very things less likely to happen. Don't be distracted by potential. Secondly, self-centeredness turns potential into boredom. Self-centeredness turns potential into boredom. Samson became completely self-centered. As we continue to study the life of Samson, we're going to discover that he makes one self-centered decision after another. Those self-centered decisions contributed to his downfall. Now, self-centeredness is something that now comes naturally to us after the fall. It is, if you will, a form of idolatry. We were created in the beginning for a world where God is in charge and we long to do what God wants us to do. But in the fall, we made a choice. And the choice that we made is that we did not want God to be in charge any longer, and we would not do what God wanted us to do. We would be in charge, and we would do what we want to do. And doing what we want to do became the consuming passion and loyalty of our lives. We decided we will make our own rules, we will pursue our own ends, and we will be in charge of our own lives. It is a subtle but insidious form of idolatry. We are the gods in our own lives. And these gods that we have become mean that we are naturally self-centered. The interesting thing, though, is that self-centeredness leads to boredom. Self-centeredness leads to boredom. We discover this clearly in the life of the author of the Old Testament book, of Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes claims to be a a son of David, a king in Jerusalem. We assume that it is Solomon. And the writer of Ecclesiastes demonstrates for us the way that self-centeredness becomes boredom. The author of Ecclesiastes was known for having great wisdom. But the author of Ecclesiastes says, in pursuing this wisdom, I have gained it all. I've gained all the wisdom. But it's not enough. I want something more. It is an ultimate form of self-centeredness. And in that self-centeredness, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I decided in addition to wisdom to pursue every kind of pleasure that I could. He writes about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, where he writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author speaks repeatedly about the different kinds of pleasure that he pursued, a totally self-centered life. I want to find something that will make me alive and make me feel happy. After pursuing pleasure, the author of Ecclesiastes says, I pursued work. I did great things in work. They were all about me and what I wanted in the world, though. And then at the end of it, I thought, you know, I'm going to die and I'm going to have to give this all over to someone else. After pursuing every kind of pleasure available, when you go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author tells us the conclusion that he came to. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, he writes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Self-centeredness led him to a place where he said, Everything is vanity. Everything is empty. Life feels dull and lifeless. The author of Ecclesiastes
0: was bored.
1: Self-centeredness led to boredom, and it always does. Now, interestingly, we human beings will do just about anything to avoid boredom. Harvard University conducted a series of studies where they tried to find out just what we human beings thought about boredom, about being left alone with nothing but our own thoughts. In one of the studies, they brought subjects in and subjected them to a mild but painful electric shock. I don't know why somebody would think to do that, but they did. And they asked the people if they liked it and the people who said no continued in the study and they asked would you be willing to pay five dollars to avoid being shocked again the people who said yes i would i dislike being shocked and i would pay five dollars to avoid it continued in the study now this group of people they put into a room for 15 minutes with nothing to do except think so that they would experienced boredom, the only thing they had the opportunity to do was to shock themselves. <laughs> the same shock they had just said they would pay $5 to avoid was their only possible distraction. And you're not going to be surprised to find that two-thirds of men and one-quarter of women... Somebody's smarter here, I'm just saying... <laughs> shocked themselves between one and four times to relieve their boredom. People would rather be electrocuted than bored. (laughs) It's surprising the lengths that we will go to to relieve our boredom. Now, Samson's boredom led him to self-destructive behaviors. Out of boredom, he went repeatedly into the territory of the Philistines, his enemies. Out of self centeredness and boredom, he went repeatedly into the arms of Philistine women. Out of self centeredness and boredom, he repeatedly experienced life altering consequences to his destructive behavior. But Samson is not alone. We all respond to boredom negatively. Now, sometimes when we are bored, we seek out new things, new thoughts, new experiences. That's the most productive response that we have to boredom. Some of us, when we get bored, become aggressive. Some of us, when we get bored, quit and give up. When we get bored, we tend to snack obsessively, to speed recklessly, to pick up our phone, searching for a distraction. When we get bored, we behave impulsively. When we're impulsive, we make destructive decisions. I wish Boris Johnson had thought about that fact back in 2020 when he was making decisions. It was the early days of the COVID pandemic and his government in Great Britain, he's Prime Minister of Great Britain had imposed a series of measures to lock down Great Britain to prevent the spread of the virus. And yet, members of his government consistently organized gatherings and parties, even gatherings and parties at his official residence, Number 10 Downing Street. When it came out, what they had done, it's been labeled Partygate, and Boris Johnson has faced penalties financially from the police, He has faced declining poll numbers, and now he's up against a parliamentary inquiry into what happened and what was said about it. And you have to ask the question, why would Boris Johnson do something so potentially self-destructive? The answer is boredom. When we're bored, we make destructive decisions that lead to life-altering consequences. So boredom should become a warning sign in our lives. Not the boredom of having 15 minutes alone to think, but the boredom that we experience for long seasons of time. When life starts to feel bland and lifeless, and we are considering self-destructive things to do, to relieve our boredom. Boredom should be a warning sign that life-altering mistakes are ahead. Because boredom happens when we are not fulfilling our God-given purpose in life. And only pursuing our God-given purpose can turn our potential into reality. That's our third potential. Our third principle today, only pursuing our God-given purpose turns our potential into reality. As we study the life of Samson, we are reminded time and time again that God is the real Savior in history, acting to save his people. Now, that is the case when God chose Abram and chose the the sons and daughters of Abraham to be a blessing to the world. It was true when God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. It is true when God repeatedly saves his people, Israel, from their persecutors. Over and over again, God is the real hero saving Israel, not Samson, not Samson. And when God saves his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, he's just getting beginning. He's just getting started saving his people. God is the real hero at work in history to save us in surprising kinds of ways. Because you see, in history, God has saved us through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has saved us from sin. He saved us from our rebellion. He saved us from eternity in hell. But in addition to the things that we know commonly that Jesus has saved us from, Jesus has saved us from boredom and saved us from meaninglessness and emptiness and self-centeredness in life. Jesus has saved us to a new life, and Jesus has saved us to a new purpose. When we begin to follow Jesus, we become disciples of Jesus Christ and ambassadors of the kingdom of God. When we become followers of Jesus, we join God in his mission in history to save his people. That's who we are. That's our identity as followers of Jesus. Now, because of who we are and because of what God has done in our lives, we have new purpose and we have new work to do. As disciples of Jesus, the new purpose and the new work that we have to do is to obediently follow Jesus and obey him in what he's asked of us. We have the job and the purpose of making and multiplying disciples for Jesus Christ. As ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we have the job of representing the values of the kingdom of God in the world. We have the job of advocating for the interests of the kingdom of God. And we have the job of making the world as it is into the world as it should be when we have the opportunity in life. That's what we do because we're disciples and ambassadors. Now you may say, wait, that's not me. That's not what I can do. I am not that person. But the simple fact of the matter is that you have been made a disciple of Jesus Christ if you are his follower. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God by virtue of being adopted into God's family. And God has given you unique gifts. He's given you a unique purpose and part to play in his mission in history to save his people. You have a purpose. You have gifts. God is working through you. Imagine for just a moment if Samson had embraced the purpose that God had for his life and the gifts that God had given to him. Samson was a deliverer, a judge of immense physical power of tremendous tactical insight into battle, and of dramatic charisma. Imagine if he had understood and embraced the purpose that God had for his life. If his life story that should have been were made into a movie, we would need Peter Jackson and George Lucas to team up on that movie. When we fail to live for our God-given purpose and when we fail to do our God-given work, the potential that we have is twisted inward and never becomes real. When we fail to live for the purpose that God has given us and for the work that he has given us, Self-centeredness takes over our lives. Self-centeredness leads to boredom. Boredom causes us to make impulsive, destructive decisions. Those destructive decisions lead to life-altering consequences. We are a moral failure before we know it, and the potential that God had put inside of us evaporates. Only Living for our God-given purpose leads us to seeing the potential that God has put inside of us become a reality. As we live for our God-given purpose, it becomes an antidote to boredom, to self-centeredness, to destructive decisions, and to moral failure. As we live for our God-given purpose, we get to live instead the great adventure that God created us to live. And only as we live for our God-given purpose do we begin to see the potential that God has placed inside of us shine. Better still, we find the power of God working through us and changing the world.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.